Welcome to Backstory and Beyond with your host, Ward Camp, seeker, innovator, and president of Northwood Retail. As Ward travels the country, he'll share the industry insights he's gained over a three decades long retail career, introduce you to trailblazing business leaders and disruptive founders, and uncover the real deal about some of the greatest cities in the world. This week, Ward sits down with Jake Stewart, Head of Business Development at Entropy, an AI tool that can instantly authenticate luxury accessories. They'll discuss the growing resale market and the subsequent increase in counterfeit goods, as well as the role of AI in the retail space. All that and more on this episode of Backstory and Beyond. We're really excited today. We've got somebody that I think can be real educational. It can be a real learning experience. We've got Jake Stewart from Entropy, and it's an AI-based authentication for luxury handbags and sneakers. Jake, thanks for coming to Austin. I really appreciate your time. I know you guys are busy, but I think AI is the topic. You know, it's come out of the gate really fast in 2023, and I'd love to hear your story. Just tell me kind of the journey, you know, what the platform is and where you see it going. Thank you for having me, Ward. Happy to be here. You know, my my background is in technology and really in the product uh, and partnership development sort of areas of technology. So after spending uh, six months at Nike, I then spent 15 years at iFit um, and led product development efforts for that organization, both on the hardware and software side of things. And so very early on in my career, I came to this realization of what technology can do to drive experiences. And so for really the last 17, 18 years, that's what I've been trying to be a part of. And uh, it's it's led me on a journey to entropy where our focus and energy is really about using artificial intelligence and machine learning to solve a problem. And the problem that we're trying to solve is, is this massive problem of counterfeiting. And while we know we can never stop counterfeiters. What we want to become is a trust layer between buyers and sellers and ensuring that that transaction um, can exist with a level of trust that hopefully our solution can provide. And so, you know, our journey has been one that has allowed us to consume massive amounts of data and build and perfect models to tell our customers whether something is real or fake at a really high level of accuracy. Sounds like you came at it from the consumer side with Nike. What a great place to train. I mean, people always say, who's the best DTC tenant out there? I would say Nike is. Yeah, you know, Nike absolutely set the foundation. I was lucky enough to be a part of the golf group at Nike while Tiger Woods was at his peak. And as you mentioned, Nike comes to product development, to marketing, and everything that they do with this perspective of consumer focus and consumer first. And that has shaped my thinking on the product and partnership side and everything that I do. And if you understand consumer behavior, if you understand their needs and their wants and their pain points, then you can really sort of work backwards in developing systems and solutions that ultimately solve those problems. How do you feel like the interaction between AI and the consumer and or the retailers you work with is? 
we're very much a B2B platform that enables a consumer experience that meets the expectations for the products that they want to purchase and in turn utilize. And so experiential retail and having worked with the Amazons and the Walmarts and the Nikes and everyone in the world that that I've been able to, it's allowed me to understand how to take an approach from the mindset of a consumer and hopefully then translate it back to what we do in our decision making around product development and around marketing and around our our voice and our messaging to really hopefully improve their overall experience with products. I think of like sneakers, luxury handbags, watches as real assets. You know, and I think what's interesting about the AI you have is, you know, we're in a world where trust has been lost. And if you were to take a woman's handbag, a nice luxury handbag, I think there's got to be a point of trust that it's real. And there's a lot of fakes out there that are really, really good. And and it sounds like you guys were one of the very first in the space to build this AI and then just the data set to figure out in the chain of where this is really happening. So I'd love to kind of hear your opinion on that. Yeah, our, our founders met in 2012 at NYU, and this whole concept was developed out of a project there. The company was formalized in 2016, and the premise was that through AI, we could authenticate any physical product. And so luxury handbags was really the first category that we picked. Not only do these products have this physical and emotional connection for consumers, but also there is a very tangible value associated with the Louis Vuittons and Chanel's of the world and their beautiful products that they create, and then the value of those increasing over time. And while we realized that, we also realized that they're one of the most counterfeited categories of products, and they also are one of the hardest to authenticate through technology. And so that's where we really cut our teeth and built this whole model and these training sets around the philosophy of understanding not only real, but also understanding fake and growing that uh, consistently. And so our models are always training, they're always learning, they're always expanding. And just as you've uh, said, counterfeiters are very opportunistic and they're smart. And so they see the ASPs of things like luxury handbags and they see the ASPs of things like sneakers and in turn they become even more opportunistic and more creative and more uh, focused on driving really good counterfeits. And so we absolutely see it that way, that there are these pockets of categories of products that are resold for much more than they're actually purchased for originally. And we want to become the standard, the truth, the trust that says, hey, you bought this today, you know it's real, and guess what? In 10 years, it's going to be worth more, and you can resell it and understand that that next person in the life cycle of a product also can can then layer into that trust. So just talking about the technology you have, how do people use it? We've created proprietary hardware that we send to our customers and that our customers use to capture images of the products that they're trying to authenticate. What is really unique about what we do is that through that hardware, we are using microscopy to basically zoom in 600x versus what the human eye looks at. And so all of those images are uploaded, they're processed, and our AI and ML and ultimately the algorithms behind that are comparing those images to our both real and fake data sets to say with confidence whether they match or whether they don't match and then deliver back results. 
Most of our authentications are instant, so 60 seconds or less. Maximum, our authentications take approximately an hour. You know, one thought I had was the relationship between AI and humans. It's a really interesting dynamic because for AI to work, it has to be trained by humans, right? And so for us, humans are verifying everything that we do from an AI perspective to make sure that the models are working correctly and that the data is being analyzed correctly. The other thing that we think about uh, as we look at AI and how it can help authentication is that we're not focused on replacing humans. Ultimately, we want to make humans more efficient, especially when you talk about authentication. There are great human authenticators out there. But if we can if we can help them scale and if we can help them process things faster and if authentication from an AI perspective can become a part of their workflows and improve efficiencies, that's very much how we look at it. So we augment humans very positively also. Bringing something that's new to the table, it's scary for a lot of people. And there's there's this education layer that has to exist. And so there were years of developing those relationships and ultimately convincing people of what we can do, their skepticism around saying that we can be 99% accurate, right? And so building those data collection relationships and then always staying out in front of not only the new products that brands bring to the table, but then those versions that are fake is an ongoing problem for us. And I would assume some of the clients either push back or you may have lost them in the early days. You know, they didn't get it, didn't get where it was going, or they didn't trust it. Absolutely, especially early days. You know, there's hiccups, there's accuracy challenges um, when you're when you're building data sets. But for the most part, those early adopters also approach technology with this framework of innovation. And so that's where a partnership becomes really, really important with people like that. One thing I found fascinating is just I never thought about the idea of someone going into Harrods, buying a Chanel bag, buying one of the best on the street from the guy, going back and returning it, and then Harrods is caught with the fake bag. And so talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive ecosystem, right? And uh, the beautiful thing about where we've come since 2016 is that there's a lot more collaboration between technologies like us, between brands, between retailers to drive that problem out. And so our technology can not only tell you if something's real or fake, but it also can catch returns fraud and it can give you a fingerprint of a product to make sure that Harrods in that example knows that the product they sold is actually the same product that someone's trying to return. Talk about the fingerprinting aspect and how that authenticates the product, because I think that's at the core of what you guys do. Every product has its own footprint, just like a snowflake does, right? Even though you and I may buy the same exact pair of Jordan 1s, they're different from each other. There's subtlety in the leather, in the logo, in the stitching. And so what we do is we use images to compare that sneaker at point of sale to then when it is returned. And so we have retailers, we have brands, we have partners that through images use that technology and then at a really high microscopic pixelated level compare that same image when it comes back through that whole life cycle of, of, of a product and in this case a returns fraud. And in fingerprinting, I would assume that the value of having something authenticated through fingerprinting, a bag, sneakers, there's got to be a value proposition. A, you don't know it's counterfeit, but over the life cycle, once it's done and it's in the database, it can travel, it can resell. 
Yeah, you're exact. You're exactly right. You know, fingerprinting is so tangible from an ROI perspective. Let's just say if you're a retailer and you have 20% of your items that are returned and half of those are returned fraudulently, right? If, if that number can wow. be reduced, there's just a direct correlation to what, what fingerprinting does as a financial benefit. Talk about bad actors, mm. what you see out there, whether it's in the U.S. or around the world, just how big is it and how pervasive is it? One of the unique things about entropy is that we're in over 70 countries. And so we see pockets of bad actors and what they're trying to do in bags and in sneakers very uniquely, right? Because we'll see something come out of Japan and then trickle into the Philippines and into other places. And then ultimately from an inventory perspective, even try to come to the US. And so we can, through our data, connect all those dots, which is really interesting. What I would say is that counterfeiters move quickly and they're using technology and they're using systems and solutions that get them close to what the real thing is. That's scary because people don't realize the, the effect of counterfeiting and what that can look like. You know, if they're spending that much money to try to beat you and the retailer, I mean, it's a massive problem. That's a problem. There are estimates across multiple categories that it's somewhere up words of a trillion dollar problem wow. annually. Wow. And what's scary is not only luxury handbags and sneakers and apparel and things like that are being counterfeited, but more and more things like auto parts and pharmaceuticals and, and other things that affect our health are being counterfeited, which is super scary. And some of the best counterfeiting absolutely comes out of China. But what's really been interesting that we've noticed is that these Chinese operations, because of duties and customs and opportunities and credibility, et cetera. They're building factories in Italy and they're building factories in the wow. Philippines. And so they're moving their operations globally to capitalize on those pockets of where things are selling really well. Well, if you think about Italy and yep. leather goods, I would have never thought that it'd be occurring there. Yep. Yeah. Walk me through, you know, thoughts on what you see as far as people trading in and out of handbags do people view it as an asset? Yeah, handbags are absolutely an asset. Over the last number of decades, their values have been growing dramatically and the resale side of things has been growing dramatically. Resale is growing 5X of traditional retail. And so I think there's a couple of dynamics at play. Firstly, uh, the consumer is changing, right? And so you have Gen Z and others that are starting to get into this luxury space. They have some disposable income. They're sort of looking at owning homes versus renting differently. And so that consumer is evolving and growing. And at the same time, they care more about sustainability. They care more about and want to participate in the circular economy. And so they're very interested in all of a sudden owning the Louis Vuitton, regardless of the fact that it's secondhand. So you have the Gen Z, and then you have probably an older consumer that has a bunch of these and wants to trade in or wants the latest style. Yeah, and it's, and it's so interesting because all generations are engaging in handbags and in luxury. There's obviously different marketplaces and different resellers, and that's what's so unique about the segmentation of it. You have pawn shops that are now in it. You obviously have the Ebays and the massive marketplaces who have been doing it for a long time. And so it's, it's really this unique ecosystem that technologies and resellers are innovating in to continue to drive the growth. And that's what's so fun to see and to be a part of. You're going to see an evolution that's going to continue as brands, as retailers, as technologies focus on the end consumer and that experience of what luxury looks like for them. 
what's kind of you don't have to tell me the exact price but like biggest item you've seen you know on the resale side that you guys have dealt with some of the coolest items that we see especially in the handbag side of things are vintage louis vuitton items not only are they beautifully crafted but in many cases they're worth tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so seeing those come through our system is always really, really interesting because of the quality, the craftsmanship, and in turn now the value that those products bring to consumers. You know, talk to me about the social influence, the side hustle person that all of a sudden they become a massive marketplace. You know, how big of an effect is that having on this market? COVID reinforced this side hustle behavior for yeah. lots of categories, luxury handbags, sneakers, trading cards, et cetera. And now they are the ones building that layer of trust with consumers. They're creating experiences. They're making it feel like you're not even shopping and all of a sudden you're buying. It's the wave of the future, very much so for categories like luxury. Again, what's so cool about the retail space and whether you include social resellers in it or not, at the end of the day, they're minimally resellers. They are targeting new consumers. They're now becoming part of this pre-loved ecosystem that is so interesting and compelling. And you guys provide the solution of, you know, the, the fingerprinting. Yep. To me, it seems like, you know, it seems like it's only going to grow more. What we see and what we believe is that 5X is on its way to 10X, right? Or, or something towards that direction. Um, you know, in sneakers, they say that the current market of resale is somewhere in the six to $7 billion range. And in the next five years, it's going to be $30 billion. So, you know, you look at those numbers and even, even if it's halfway there, it's astronomical how consumers are evolving and shopping and how resellers themselves are moving to where that customer is and delivering on something from an experience that's better than what exists today. And that's that's what for us is really compelling is that we still are a part of that because a lot of our live resellers are actually using entropy in a show to say, hey, this is real. You can trust me. Buy with confidence. And they do it sight unseen in terms of physically touching something and have a great experience through it. You know, the one thing I, I find interesting, you you look at a lot of the luxury guys, what they've gotten really smart at is pulling back. Mm. They want to control the channels now because they realize how big a business this is. So I'd love to kind of you know get your thought on that. Brands and retailers both understand that they have to play in this space. There's too many examples of pre-loved resellers and people in that space that have just proven the opportunity, right? And proven the demand. The struggle that brands and retailers have is doing it in the way that consumers don't see it as double dipping and making sure that from a holistic perspective, they're approaching it such that the consumer is really the objective versus just profits or revenue. It's a challenge though. You think of like Nike and their sneakers app and what they've created in urgency and demand right. around drops. Well, the reason that sneakerheads participate in that is that they can still get it for a good price to ultimately add to their collection or resell down the road or whatever. If all of a sudden Nike is dropping that sneaker and then they're also the one that you have to resell it through and they profit from that and so on and so forth, it creates a, a really challenging dynamic, I think, for the consumer to understand that. And so that's what brands are trying to figure out how to solve for. Talk about a sneakerhead versus like a luxury consumer. They're, they're a lot more volume-based. There's a lot of like quick-hitting, buy-sell, 
and, and do that within 24, 48 hours, right? L- luxury is much more about buy and hold and obviously a much higher ticket, a much higher average sell. And so coach may be their starting point. They're going to go use that, love that, sell it and still make money and then upgrade to something else. And so it's a longer tail in terms of what luxury and pre-loved means for them. Sneakerheads are opportunistic. They want to buy today and sell tomorrow and they want to churn through that to really drive it. It's almost like if you were to look at the stock market, it's like yeah. the sneakerhead's a day trader yeah. and the the luxury handbag is a buy and hold, you know, for the long term and just wants the value and the dividend just keeps going up. It's a very great comparison. And what you're seeing on the sneaker side of things is a lot of people almost starting to look at those assets as, as such and building out technologies and platforms that operate almost like a stock market and like a day trader. And so that's, that's a really great comparison of how their mindsets are different and, and how ultimately the, the life cycle of the product is super quick. It's great. It's all good stuff. You know, I always think about like decision trees in life. You intern at Nike. We talked about are you a tech or you're a retail guy. Just, you know, decisions you've made in your life. Talk about some of those things maybe you did on your journey just to where you are. My journey to entropy has very much been about products. I was lucky enough at Nike and iFit to learn how products were made and to understand and see firsthand the cause and effect of counterfeiting and actually be in factories where counterfeiting is happening. And so I remember when Entropy came out in 2016. And because of my experience at product companies like Nike and iFit, knowing the problems and then seeing a solution was really, really compelling to me. And so while I'm sure I've made mistakes along my journey to get to Entropy, ultimately timing, my love for products, my love for technology to solve those problems led me to being a part of Entropy and hoping to continue to get our message out there. Again, we're not trying to solve the problem of counterfeiting. We know it's too big to do that. But if we can chip away at it and if we can, through technology, give customers confidence and trust, it's really compelling to have that fundamental value associated with what I'm trying to do. You know, people want to know, can they trust you and can you deliver? And I think those are just the two core values that it sounds like you guys have. And then, you know, on top of that, it sounds like the data you're seeing, the the bigger the database gets, the more information you have, the more you're able to peel away. Like, There's no question you're spot on. You know, our, our objective is to continue to grow data sets. And the more data we have, the better off our technology is. You know, our pillars from a technology perspective are really accuracy, speed, and then what we deliver in terms of results, which includes how we certify products and how we ultimately provide a financial guarantee for those. And so we analyze millions and millions of images. And that grows as we continue to grow our customer base. And what's really critical for us as it relates to our data sets and ultimately our algorithms and how we train them is that we have really great images of reels and products that are authentic, but that we also have really great images of fakes. And so we have entire teams dedicated to essentially scanning products on both sides, authentic and fake, to grow those databases while also obviously having all the images that come through for our customers. You know, Interesting thought as you're seeing all this data, have you ever seen just a batch and then you trace it back? And I'm just thinking about, you said, you know, it's Japan, Italy, like, are you seeing 
that where you go, huh? Absolutely. That's what's unique about our global footprint. And I sort of mentioned Italy for that exact reason. Um, this last year, we saw pockets of inventory where all of a sudden at a number of our customers across Europe, we saw similar fakes. And so in turn, you're realizing that there are these batches that start to get into supply chains and start to become problems. And what it allows us to do is hopefully try to, with our customers, make them aware and then get out in front of it and stop it. You guys, you know, you're this kind of startup. James Allen, Chris Zook wrote this book, The Founder of Mentality. There's kind of three pillars. One of them is you're this insurgent technology, which it feels like you guys were one of the very first. You know, running the business, you know, it can't be, you're moving so fast, it can't be a bunch of meetings and bureaucratic cash flows. Somebody's always looking at that. And then the last part that I really focus on is being on the front line because the front line tells you everything. You know, you're talking to everyone and you're aware of all of it. Is that kind of the way you guys run the business? Yeah, very much so. All of those pillars are fundamental to our core values and what we're trying to accomplish. There's a pace and an urgency in everything that we do that ensures speed. And we're trying to learn and grow and operate within those pillars as fast as we possibly can. I do think speed is really important. It's a really competitive industry to be in, retail and the consumer. But if you think about the consumer being 70% of the economy or GDP, it's an important space to play in. It absolutely is. And if you don't understand the consumer, that's where I think the demise starts to bubble up, right? You look at retailers and brands and examples of people who have failed. At the end of the day, they forget who their consumer is. And I think they forget those front lines and stop having those conversations. So what's really impressive to me about our company and our team is that from our CEO down, Day in and day out, we're talking to the industry, we're talking to brands, and ultimately we're talking to the end consumer to understand who they are, what they need, and how things evolve. Because if you have the consumer as your focus, you never lose that North Star. It sounds like dealing with Nike, dealing with more heritage-type companies is probably the space you play in. But more importantly, understanding, you know, I think all of retail relates back to demographics. And by the way, there is this transfer of wealth that's going to happen over the next 10 or 20 years. And there's going to be a lot of consumption. And then the world market is so big. You know, how do you guys look at that? That's why we feel it's so important to understand the demographics and how they differ, not only across generations, but also across the globe. And it's why we play in so many different segments, right? Again, kind of back to what we discussed earlier, Pawn shops and who walks into a pawn shop day in and day out is entirely different than who's buying off of TikTok versus who's buying off of eBay. And at the end of the day, we don't really discriminate in terms of the segments that we focus on. Obviously, there's some that are bigger than others, and there are certain areas that may not make sense. But what we try to do is be a part of conversations across all of those different segments. And so understanding our personas within each of those segments is a massive focus and an effort for us. And, and always just understanding how they're evolving. Because if we can be there and ensure we're that standard in all of those different areas, we get back to the end consumer who, again, demographically is different from all of those different people. The underlying factor of all this, I think you guys are probably on the same page we are, where we invest 
you know, we think about job growth. We think about where the young people are going, what they need. But I think you guys agree it all comes back to demographics and what you see. Absolutely. Right. And if you understand those demographics, you can understand the channels they play in. Right. You can, again, understand their different needs and ultimately serve up something that helps address those. It, it all starts with that for us and understanding them and what they want and what they need and how channels are servicing them. Well, it's moving so fast. Instagram was one thing, but the TikTok thing is another. And the scale that TikTok has is... Yeah, I mean, it would be surprising if within the next two to three years, they're not the largest reseller of pre-loved goods. Like, and you just think about that statement, right? You think about businesses that have been in it forever, businesses and brands and retailers that will continue to get into it. TikTok, a social platform, could become the largest reseller of pre-loved globally. You know, as we explore our guests, we always want to find out where they're from. Being in Salt Lake, I'd love to know kind of the real deal, you know, boutiques, restaurants. Just talk a little bit about the scene, the vibe in Salt Lake. I got to be careful because there's too many people coming to Salt Lake yeah, yeah. here, here <laughs> Ward. But fundamentally, Salt Lake and Utah in general is is all about activity. So if you if you like the mountains, if you like to bike, hike, ski, and enjoy being in nature, you know, in my opinion, it's one of the greatest places in the world. I think the Olympics being there in mm, '96 huge. was the catalyst. And then just the resorts up in Park City, but then the airport. I think you guys have one of the top airports, you know, and that probably precipitates, helps. you know, definitely helps. Go-tos in town, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Restaurant-wise, we're getting more and more diversity, which is great. So if you like great Mexican, Italian, and even Indian, those restaurants continue to grow and expand. One of my favorite Mexican restaurants is the Red Iguana, unbelievable burritos. And uh, from an Italian perspective, there's a family-owned place that we love to go. It's called Lenone. The owner is Italian. He's from Italy. He prepares all the meals. It's this beautiful old home that he's built the restaurant in. So it's like walking back in time to old Italy. And the church has built this whole shopping center called City Creek. And in City Creek, it has this combination of outdoor, indoor, and uh, restaurants, great stores, a really fun atmosphere and experience that, that is well worth going and exploring. And lastly, the hidden gem. So about an hour and a half north is one of the last family-owned ski resorts in, in Utah. It's called Beaver Mountain. It's over 100 years old. Lift tickets are under $60, where Park City's 225 now. Wow. And you, you get as good of snow with not as many runs. One of the last great family mountains from a ski perspective that exists. It's pretty rare. There's rare. Family yeah. Rare. You know, especially yeah. in Utah, everything's been bought up and people have merged with Vail and other things like that. And it just, the, the lodge is nothing to write home about, but the snow is gorgeous. And, uh, you know, for, for $56, you can still have Utah snow and, and that doesn't exist very many places anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, you know, I just want to thank you for coming to Austin, sharing this fascinating business you're in and just educating us on what's happening with AI, how it relates to the consumer, how you think. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And then lastly, how do people find you? Yeah, thank you, Ward. Appreciate it a ton. It's been an honor. Um, you can find us at entropy.com. We're across all different social media platforms, but easiest to reach out via entropy.com to find us. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
This has been Backstory and Beyond, hosted by Ward Camp. To learn more about Northwood Retail or the destinations from today's episode, visit BackstoryBeyond.com.